Welcome to the Strive for More podcast. My name is Jared Hendry and I'm the founder of Strive. We're a group of young entrepreneurs that you've probably never heard of. In our weekly meetings, we share keystone habits that can change the lives of the other entrepreneurs in the group. And now I want to share those habits with you. Each week, you'll get access to what we call the teachable moment. And that focuses on improving the quality of our health, wealth, and relationships. Today, I'm really fortunate to be joined by Lewis Matthews. Lewis is an ex-management consultant who made the jump into the tech world, specifically food tech, where he leads the sales operations function for DoorDash Canada, the on-demand food delivery platform that started out of San Francisco in 2013. He is a Vancouver native who has been living in Toronto for the last four years. When he's not coming up with a new sales strategy or launching a new market at work, he's hosting a dinner party or planning a snowboard trip. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us today. Jared, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Well, my friend, I heard that you were recently in Japan, so a warm welcome back and just wanted to check in and see how your trip was. Oh, yeah. Um, I got back uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, This was a phenomenal ski trip. Uh, I did with one of my best friends in the world. Him and I are trying to do a big trip every every two years. It's looking like the cadence right now. And um, it was unreal. We we got really, really great conditions, despite this year being uh, a lower snowfall than average year. Um, basically, if you can if you can picture fresh, cold snow up to your up to your waist every day uh, and like bluebird sunny days, it was uh, it was really something special. And fresh sushi, like how could you go wrong? Oh, the ramen, yeah, man. The food, food was unreal. And they have beer, I've heard. They do, but all Japanese beer kind of tastes the same. It's all just like a really decent lager. Um, and so like your first tastes the exact same as your 12. <laughs> <laughs> so, so where's the next trip? Uh, we're thinking, given that he has moved uh, to London, we're thinking probably doing uh, one of the Alps. Not sure which yet though but um and worst case scenarios we always just go back home to bc right i mean some of the best skiing if not the best skiing in the world is uh, right in our back door so lewis we've known each other for quite some time but actually in our conversation prior to this podcast we realized that we've never actually met in person so i think it's kind of apropos that we're recording this podcast remotely just to continue that streak of not meeting each other in person um, <laughs> maybe one day <laughs> well hopefully one day we'll meet in person i don't know uh, Lewis, I, getting to know you over all these years and in kind of a remote setting, I've always seen you as somebody that is so driven to succeed and you push yourself to these new levels and you're also somebody that's routine-based in your approach to life. And so I just want to go back to your past and understand, have you always been this way? Uh, well, that's very kind of you to say, Jared. I, I don't necessarily know if I would uh, consider myself successful or ha- have succeeded yet, but I suppose I'm I'm kind of working on both defining what success means uh, and and working at it a little bit every day, but uh, appreciate that nonetheless. Um, I, I guess to answer your question, the, sh- the short answer is no. I, I haven't always been uh, quote unquote this way. Um, I mean, you know, when I was younger, I grew up in a, a great family, um, and but I think we always kind of prioritized just having fun, um, and, and that was my life, right? I was living in a small town. There was like, I think New West has about 50 or 60,000 people. Everybody knows everybody. Um, and yeah, school wasn't a priority for me. Um, my nights and my weekends were were spent kind of 
partying it up and living in the moment, um, just kind of blissfully unaware of of all the you know, amazing things this world has to offer. Uh, if you if you just put in a little bit little bit of elbow grease, and so um, I, I had to take some time to kind of get to where I am now. And um, you know, look, I mean, I haven't had a hard life by by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I suppose kind of if you were to tell my 17 year old high school self where I where I would be now, I, I don't think he would he would necessarily believe me. I was just in a a car race, and as a kid, I. Um... Like whenever we'd go to go-karting, you know where you go as a school and you go out to like the go-karting track and um, yeah, you like race the go-karts around the track. And I remember as a kid being so terrified um, and just being so scared of going fast that literally everybody on the track, boys, girls, teachers, it didn't matter. Everybody would lap me. and I was like the last kid, like driving 20 kilometers an hour around the track. And I went out to this car derby uh, hosted at a friend's parents farm and, and they've been doing it for 10 years and um yeah we we drove around this snowy track in minus 20 in these like 300 dollars cars and wow. i had so much enjoyment in going fast and trying to pass people and overcoming people and uh, not that i was any good or anything but just such a contrast to how i was as a kid and, and sometimes it's just interesting to look back and see those differences in yourself that's uh that's funny they that say that because if i were to think about that i would probably back as a kid be the one the reckless driver just like no regard for safety completely you know no concept of risk <laughs> but now if i were to do that you know a lot more a lot more on the line a lot more calculated in how i approach things um so but hey look sometimes you know what like having fun i I'm, i don't mean to say like i don't have fun anymore but um now i just think i do it with a, a little bit of a, sh- a sharper mind well, Lewis, we have switched roles here, my friend. Apparently. So, Lewis, you spoke about making a change from living in the moment to being more focused on your career. So I'd like to know, what changed for you? Well, you know, it, it took a little bit longer. So um, I, I kind of had like an atypical path after graduating from from high school into, into university. A lot of my like now friends and, and colleagues kind of, you know, you're 18, you graduate, you do their four-year degree. You get your in- great internship, boom, boom, boom. Um, you know, I kind of squeaked through high school. I uh, ended up at, uh, you know, a college for, for two years because that's what, you know, you're supposed to do. Um, and just kind of continued to flounder. Um, all I wanted to do was snowboard. I worked at a snowboard shop, um, you know, just get my C minuses and get out of there. I didn't, you know, I was studying all sorts of geography and geology stuff, riveting things. Um <laughs> But uh, I guess the the short answer is like, I just needed time to realize what I wanted here. So, um, you know, after two years of college, I was like, okay, I'm sick of wasting my money, wasting my time. You know, what am I doing? So I decided to kind of put everything on pause um, and go live at a ski resort, kind of get that all out of my system, um, which was a great, you know, great experience. Um, And I was doing some like really, you know, random odd jobs. I worked at the fishing lodge and just doing kind of random admin jobs. And then one time and then I was 21 years old, I was like, okay, what's going on? What am I doing here? Um, and I think, I think just like being exposed to like, you know, different people and, and different, um, through different jobs. I was like, I really got to get my, my, my SHIT together here. And, um, I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe business like is, is something for me. Um, but then I was like, oh man, what do we, 
that's like statistics and calculus and accounting and all this stuff. And, and I can, I can just see my math well teacher right now. She, um, she, I think she'd probably give me 50% just so that she would like never have to see me in class ever again. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't know, I guess, I guess to your question, like what, what flipped just kind of having that time to realize what I wanted. And I think I said, yeah, I want to go to business school and, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to do that. And I, and I made a plan and I worked at it. I, I figured out what I needed to do to get into business school at, at Simon Fraser University. And I, you know, did a work back plan of like the GPA that I needed, the grades I needed in each course. And, you know, I like, you know, getting a, an A is not a lot, big deal for a lot of people, but I can tell you that, you know, landing my first A in calculus coming from, from barely passing math in high school was, was a big deal for me. And, and those little wins, they just kind of compounded and, um, you know, I ended up, you know, getting in on scholarship and, um, and just having a, a great time and, and really appreciating the value of the education. I think, I think with time, having that break allowed me to, to really do that. And yes, I was a few years older than my peers, but um, kind of no regrets. So did you feel like you, by making the choice, like you said that you realized that you wanted to go to business school, by being able to make that choice, like that, it sounds like led to you succeeding in the future. So my question is, were you not making those choices prior to, were you making those choices for somebody else? What was the, why didn't you have that same kind of autonomy? Um, I, I mean, there's, there's a, I guess it's like a nature nurture kind of question, right? So like nature, it's like, what are you exposed to? And there's that element of, um, you know, like, are you seeing different things in the world that would allow you to open your eyes and, 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 and like explore the art of the possible. Um, and then the nurture component, I guess, is like more of the inherent things. Like, um, you know, I definitely think my parents played a part in that. Um, they, they knew that I was like floundering in, in school and they always said, look, you know, you've got a good head on your shoulders. You'll make the right decisions. We trust you. Um, and eventually you'll come to that. And, and that's really just how it played out. And so you go to Simon Fraser University and you started some kind of club. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, um, so funny. It feels like I remember talking about this club through all my job interviews. Um, so I kind of have this, <laughs> this is I kind of have this interview. one. Yeah, no, <laughs> it feels, it feels like that, but uh, slightly less stressful. Um, so, <laughs> so this club, okay. So, uh, so I joined the business program. You, you get exposed again. This is like one of those things you, you get exposed, to like all these things that you can do. Um, and, uh, and I, I learned about this field called management consulting and like, it's still ambiguous to me, even after having been in the industry for, for two and a half, three years. Um, but it's like the essence of it is like, you know, people who solve problems for, uh, various different companies and you get exposure to all these different industries and you get to like sharpen your toolkit, uh, for problem solving and, and, you know, all the skills that you, you gain are, are really applicable to, to any walk of life or any career or anything. So I was like, yeah, I want to do that. I think that's great. It's, it's kind of felt like a, a, a highly coveted cop out job where it's like, I don't really know what I want to do, but this sounds like a, a really great place to start. Uh, problem was, um, very competitive, very tough to break into this industry. Um, also because Simon Fraser was, was not a, uh, a, what we call like a feeder school or a target school. Um, so I kind of saw this problem and I was like, okay, well, what resources do we have? And this was in my third year. And, um, you know, the, the career management center, they said, oh, you know, here's a website, like here's a book you can get or whatever. Um, when then I looked around and I said, well, look at all these other schools that have like these robust programs in place that like help actually funnel students in there. And they teach them the, the core skills required to, 
you know, not only be successful during the interview process, which is very rigorous itself, but also on the job. And so, you know, I, I thought, well, why don't we solve this? And I didn't want to solve it by doing a big club where, you know, everybody kind of comes and you, you learn about it and you know, it's, it's kind of open to all doors. I said, well, if this is a competitive industry, then the, you know, in order to get people in the door, we need them to be competitive and we need to show off the best and the brightest. And it sounds a little harsh, but you know, really it wasn't, it wouldn't be doing anyone justice. Um, unfortunately, like a lot of these firms that receive thousands of applications, they just cut off at a GPA, right? A certain GPA level. So we were equally as rigorous around the, the criteria to get into the program. Uh, I worked super, super hard um, to kind of design a curriculum network with tons of different firms. I had to get buy-in from, you know, the career management center. It definitely cost them a lot of money. And, you know, we wanted to start with a small cohort, 16, 16 students who could actually stand a chance. And um, the TLDR here is, you know, after our first year, we placed over 50% of them in uh, in consulting uh, companies across Canada. Um, the program is now in its fifth year. It is expanded. Um, and I kind of come in as like a, you know, a, a, an advisor every now and then. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, you know, it's definitely one of the things that I'm, I'm kind of most proud. That's an incredible legacy, man. That's a, takes a lot of courage, I think, to design something that doesn't exist. Uh, and in the process, obviously, you went on to be a management consultant yourself. So you were a part of that 50%. So it did work out for, for you as a person as well. I'd like to circle back a bit and just talk about that curriculum that you developed. I'd be interested to know what is actually what was in that curriculum. Yeah, so I guess if you if you ha- if you think about like the the kind of four key skills that are required uh, of, of a consultant, um, we tried to anchor it around those those pillars, if you will. Uh, so one is like highly analytical. Um, so being able to like you know quickly make sense of numbers, you know, work with charts and graphs, um, that kind of stuff. The the second is um, and maybe the most important uh, is structured problem solving. So the ability to kind of break down issues, decompose them, you know, get to the root cause, um, and, and just look at things in a in a very, you know, structured way is is, is super important. the The third thing is really your communication, um, and this should never be uh, undervalued. It's 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 something that is you know it's important in all walks of life, like I said, but. Um, especially when you're you're facing the C-suite, right? You're an analyst, you're coming in on your first case and you've got to meet, meet like the vice president of a bank. You have to be able to quickly, uh, concisely just deliver a message. Um, so, so communication skills were the third one. And then the fourth one is just like really general business acumen, your ability to understand the difference between like ROI and, you know, gross margin, um, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff, which comes naturally for business students, but, you know, en- uh, engineers, not so much. So, we anchored it around that. Um, we also wanted it to be very experiential. So a lot of hands-on work. Um, if there's one thing I hate, it's, you know, being lectured at for, um, you know, two hours a night. So, and, and it was very uh, practical, right? Like to, to get into these uh, interviews, you or to, to be successful in these interviews, you have to do practice case interviews. And, and we made a mandate. You have to, you know, practice a minimum of 50 over the course of the summer. Wow. Um, and we tracked all of that. So, you know, I think... Uh, I think kind of that that blend was important. And then maybe the last piece was just really bringing in uh, firms. And I think especially in our first year, we needed to make sure that the value to these students who were taking a risk on joining an inaugural program was there. And that was evident in, you know, building these relationships with like eight firms around Vancouver and bringing them in to talk about it uh, and, and getting exposed to those consultants one-on-one. 
And was that your primary focus in that early period was liaising with those firms to ensure that what you were providing was actually what they were looking for? Yeah, definitely. It's a kind of a chicken and the egg situation, right? Where you, you promise these firms that like, these are the best students. Um, and then, you know, these students, you promise that you're going to bring in the best firms. Um, and so I think that, I mean, I'm a, I did all the cold calling myself and, and had to like, you know, uh, promise them that, that it would be worth their time to come in and speak when uh, I'm sure, you know, a consultant's life, uh, lifestyle is very, very busy. So I did a lot of that. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, to your, to your point, like, was it something that I wanted to do to get into consulting? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, like there's probably some Machiavellian element to it. I think, you know, did I do it for the sole purpose of like helping, you know, craft my story for, for interviews? No. Um, did it help me? Yes, it did. It definitely gave me something uh, to, to bolster on my leadership section of the resume. But I think more importantly, you know, it was, uh, I, I was able to help other people. Uh, I was able to kind of leave a, a legacy. And like you said, and, and, maybe most importantly it was such a valuable exercise for me in starting something from nothing right like really knowing what it takes to pour your your blood sweat and tears into something um which i'm sure resonates with a lot of your your audience here and i'm no entrepreneur by any stretch of the imagination but um this was kind of the the, the embodiment of that entrepreneurial spirit i think if i can read between the lines maybe the biggest factor in the success of the program was that you made promises on both sides and then just had to figure out a way to actually achieve those. You told the firms like, Hey, we're going to get great students for you. And you told the students, Hey, we're going to get great firms for you. And then you just had to figure yep. out a way of actually accomplishing that. Totally. Um, yeah. So huge kudos to you for starting that. I think that that's a, a testament to your own strengths and abilities that it's still going on to this day. Um, and obviously it was successful for you in some way because you you ended up moving to Toronto, you got a job with EY. And so I'm hoping you can just tell us a little bit about how you started out with EY, what kind of work you were doing, uh, maybe what kind of skills you, you really had to kind of develop at that time. Sure. Yeah. So uh, Ernst & Young, for those people who don't know what it is, I mean, it's a, it's one of the large largest professional services firms in the world, um, you know, 250,000, I think, or more globally. So I worked in the Toronto office um, in our strategy consulting team. And luckily for me, I designed a curriculum that had, you know, set me up for success. Um, day one, you're, you're into Excel models, you're um, kind of designing client-friendly uh, PowerPoint decks, um, you're doing brainstorming sessions, and you're working late hours. So um, that's kind of the, the skill set that, that I knew was, that was needed and was coming. Um, you know, your question around what what did I do like for project work? I mean, you know, in general management consultants are, are brought in to, to tackle problems that, that clients don't really have the wherewithal or bandwidth to, to solve themselves. Um, and, you know, there's a strategy component to it, uh, but then there's like an execution component to it. And arguably the latter is, is a lot more difficult to do. Um, but, you know, um, some of my projects were like, how do we make our customers more loyal? Um, how do we, how do we roll out a change management plan and a, and a training strategy for, for you know, a new system? Um, how should we be looking at our customers in terms of uh, their, their buying behaviors and, and, and what, how do we navigate the digital age to like allow us to get there? So those are some of like, they, they sound a little lofty and I, and I realize that now saying it because um, that's actually one of the reasons that I ended up pivoting out of consulting for, for the bit was, you know, getting sick of making those hundred slide decks for executives that kind of just didn't really... <laughs> 
go anywhere. Speaking about those problems that you experienced, what did you find that there were some kind of commonalities between the problems that these businesses had? Mm, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we're brought in to consult largely um, you know, existing, well-established companies, right? And um, I think I ended up consulting with a lot of financial services companies. And when you're talking about a 200-year-old bank, um, you've got tons of of just really compounding issues that have that have uh, built up over time. So in terms of you know siloed processes and and people and systems not talking to each other, um, just general uh, inertia, I think to you know to changing anything and uh, and I'd say Canadians more more so than any uh, anyone else is just a general risk aversion. So you know we come in and we say, well, here's what the data says and and here's our recommendation. And it's like, oh yeah, I mean, that sounds great, but not too sure if that's the path. Like everybody just wants to, you know, stay current course and speed and and status quo. So I think that was a lot of the the common problems I was seeing through banks. And I worked on a steel manufacturer and you know a provincial company and and all of these, you know, big old organizations. They it's it's hard to change. What about on the flip side of the coin? Did you ever see things that were done really well that you thought, well, when I move into maybe a, a future company or when I consult with uh, startups or whatever that's going to be, these are kind of the things that I really want to translate with me? Uh, sorry, sorry. The question is, what did these, um, what did these businesses do really well? Yeah. Um, hmm. They hired us. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> so I guess, and I want, I want to try and remain, t- you know, tactical and practical, I guess, for, for your listeners here, because I don't think you can compare, um, you know, the life of an entrepreneur to the life of a, of a banking executive. But I'll, I'll say this, I think when you get the fundamentals right, that's when the magic happens, right? Um, I think, and I see this not just in, in my old clients, um, but but even now, at, you know, in, in tech, um, it's so tempting to want to do you know solve all the fun problems and, and add all the bells and whistles um but you know i think if your foundation is cracked right everything is eventually going to collapse um so i would say like really just you know the, the the client and i and i did obviously see some clients who, who who exhibited this behavior but when you focus on the mvp and you get that right and you have things like clean data um, and, and strong like product market fit and you know the problem you're solving um, so, so that's going to be like getting those fundamentals right everything else will fall into place that's great feedback that i myself need to follow so those are kind of the things that i'm actually working on with drive right now is uh, really diving deeper into identifying what it is that i'm actually solving for and and i see a lot of value in in focusing on that. And I also see the flip side, how easy it is to just kind of wander off. And like you said, focus on the fun things. And sometimes whether that's Instagram for like a business that focuses on social media or um, business cards or whatever that is, that fun thing that's mm-hmm. an add on, mm-hmm. that's just time taken away from focusing on the core of your business. And so I, I would fully endorse that. And it's a lesson that I've learned probably far too late. Well, there's no time like the present. You ended up, Lewis, um, transitioning out of consulting work, and and I think all of us kind of have this stigma around consulting, where we 
we know the the TV shows and we know kind of the the social commentary on consultants and how hard it is at the 80 hour weeks and people are eating at their desk and it's just awful, not awful work, but it's uh, really, really intense and stressful. And so uh, you transitioned to the tech industry and I'd be interested to know, why do you make that transition? Um, yeah, I think, I think when, uh, okay. So we'll start by saying like, why do people get into consulting in, in the first place? Um, I think a lot of people coming out of a university, especially the undergraduate level, look to consulting as a place where they can really continue to sharpen and hone their 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 business skill set. Um, and it is, to your point, a high pressure cooker, right? So you are from day one expected to hit the ground running uh, and produce results. Um, you're also surrounded by a lot of uh, really really smart people who help kind of push your thinking um, and push your boundaries there. And, but it is draining and, and, and it is very typical to see after, you know, two, three, um, sometimes four, but, but, you know, I'd say like three years is really the, the major jumping off point um, where, you know, you spent that time kind of getting that toolkit um, and you're highly marketable then. And instead of continuing up the ladder in the firm, you can jump ship to, you know, use those skills, whether it's in, you know, a tech startup, um, you can go jump four levels and go to go to a client, right? A client often poaches uh, consultants to, to come in and they pay them exorbitant amounts of money to do that. Um, so it really just came down to me, um, for me thinking about, okay, well, what are my options here? Um, what's going well? What's not going well? Um, what is the opportunity cost uh, of leaving this firm? And what is the story that I think I want to tell when I when I look back? Um, and and saying you know, four, five, six years at, at EY. Um, I don't know, for me, it just didn't seem as compelling as, as you know, looking at, at jumping into something, a uh, completely new arena where I could leverage some skills, but also would be, would be pushed um, to, to new levels. And so I was really interested in the tech space. Um, definitely always considered myself to be scrappy and, um, you know, not always as, as structured as I, as I claim to be. And so I wanted to just kind of get my hands into the weeds and, and solve some cool problems. And, and, you know, it just so happened that the food tech uh, space was blowing up in Toronto and, um, and DoorDash seemed to, seemed to stick. You spoke about how you wanted to create a story for yourself. What do you mean by that? Um, yeah, so I guess when, if I were to do like a look back exercise and I were to say, you know, in, in three or five years time. Um, and I could say, you know, here's what I accomplished. Um, and I think it's a valuable exercise for, for lots of people. It's kind of reverse engineering, you know, your resume um, and, and thinking through you know, what it is, what the skills that you've been able to, to garner over the last whatever five years. And I said two and a half consulting plus let's call it two and a half tech. Um, I think it's just a, a great marriage of, of, of skill sets where on one hand you have that, you know, really sharp, crisp, client-friendly, you know, structured problem solving um, skill set. And then the other hand, you've got that just get it done, like get your hands into the weeds, grow a business, solve problems every day, um, put out a million fires every day. And I think that is kind of the, the story I was looking to tell as opposed to just saying like, yep, I just kind of worked my way up the corporate ladder. What does that look by look back actually look like for you? I think writing it down is actually a a, uh, a really really strong way to to make this come to life. 
Um, and, and putting pen to paper is definitely a lost art, I, I feel like. And, and I actually did that. I, I, I wrote my resume uh, in five years time. And I think if that's the question you're asking, like, what does the exercise actually look like? Um, exactly. I think that's something that, you know, we, we should be doing more of and, and, and kind of sitting down and being introspective and thinking through your, your short and long-term goals. I actually want to dive into that a little bit more. So you said that you designed your resume for five years from now. So you you would say I'm writing down DoorDash from 2018 to 2023, and I was in the, this position, this position, and this position, and these were the skills mm-hmm. that I learned. Or what does that yeah. actually look like? Um, for me, it was obviously I'm not I'm not getting super uh, specific on the resume, but it was definitely you know. Contrib- like one contributing to the growth of a business in, in a meaningful way. Um, I think two was, you know, I was, I was also looking for a, a company that was very aptly timed and we can talk a little bit about this ar- around like, um, you know, going public. Cause I think when you, when you look at the life cycle of a, of a startup um, from, from seed to IPO, I really wanted to kind of get in there where there wasn't that, series a kind of back of the garage you know it's kind of oh am i still gonna have a job tomorrow situation to um the series g which is kind of where we're at right now where you're actually involved in scaling a business um and, and making these you know big important decisions around the future and, and getting ready to be a, you know a big public company so I, I wanted that to be a bullet on the resume um and yeah i also you know i guess i wanted to to join a company that i kind of felt uh, a little bit more like we were doing something cool um, as opposed to like just consulting for, for big banks. Um, so yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Uh, I'd be interested to know also as you were making that career switch, because I think this can be relevant for f- folks that are listening out there is what kind of questions did you ask yourself specific questions, maybe outside of this uh, look back, that kind of allowed you to narrow down tech and DoorDash eventually? Yeah. um, I think there's other elements too around like, what's my current trajectory here? Like um, what am I excited to come to work? Uh, What, uh, where can I grow more? Uh, What are my skill deficiencies? Um, and, And how can I, can I supplement those or can I fill those? Sorry currently where I'm at or do I need to look elsewhere to, to do that um and and just generally like am I happy and like don't get me wrong UI was a great place to work and, and I had a lot of uh, great colleagues that I, um, I respect and, and I'm still friends with but I just think the I, I was pretty comfortable in saying um I'm at this you know proverbial fork and I feel like I've gotten what I needed to get out of these first th- two and a half three years here um, and, and I just feel like I can push myself and, and, and get new skills elsewhere. So those are the types of questions I was asking. And can you tell us a bit about your current role with DoorDash? What's your title? What, what's kind of a day-to-day for you? Uh, yeah, definitely. So, uh, maybe I'll start with, uh, so like, I think you, you've talked a little bit about DoorDash. We're uh, seven years old now. Um, we're, uh, currently... Um, so we're based out of San Francisco um, and in Canada, um, which is our second international market out of uh, four. We're currently in four different countries. We, Toronto is the headquarters and I head up our uh, sales strategy and operations team. 
So basically what that means is we have, in order to get merchants or restaurants on the platform, we need to have salespeople. Uh, and we have salespeople who go out in the field and sell. Um, and we have salespeople on the phone who are based remotely. So I have to manage everything from the, you know, goaling, what's our, what's our target, what's our revenue target, um, what's our market penetration target, um, all the way to, you know, how many bums and seats do we have for headcount? Uh, what's their individual plan? How do I create a comp plan for them? How do I pay them? Um, you know, how do I hold them to goals? How do we, how do we launch new markets? Where do we want to launch new markets? Um, so it is definitely like a blend of like the, the strategy component and also like, you know, actually paying someone. It, it's kind of crazy to like design someone's um, comp um, and, and, and think through like, here's how your livelihood's going to go. Um, so mm. it's a lot of like learning best practices from our, from our counterparts in San Francisco, but um, definitely the, you know, was a job that did not exist here before I started. And so how many people currently report to you roughly? So we have a weird reporting structure. Um, our strategy team really doesn't um, have a lot of like reports. I, I I oversee, I guess you can you can say, um, a sales team of um, God. What is our seventeen? Like twenty five. Um, however, they have like sales managers, which is in charge. They're and they're in charge of like the coaching, the training, the development, and that kind of stuff. Um, I I definitely am like on the on the back end of things. So I I help. Basically, if you were to summarize like what my job is, it's to en- enable our sales teams to hit their hit their goals, to come up with their goals, and then enable them to do that. What kind of skills gaps did you have to close to move from the consulting world, where I'm just going to assume that there wasn't 25 people reporting to you or 25 people that you were overseeing, and then now in this role where you have 25 people that you're overseeing, that's a big task. Yeah. So, I guess if you think about like the uh, like the Venn diagram of, of skill sets between consulting and you can't beat the consultant out of me. I'm still thinking in, in terms of charts <laughs> and graphs, but um, I was trying. Yeah. So, so you've got on one hand, you've got the, the consulting skill set. And I think um, the overlap between the consulting and the, the tech startup is, you know, the grinding, the, the 80 hour work weeks, the, that kind of stuff. And I will just say, like, I know you, you mentioned consulting, uh, you know, we work hard. I, I think I, I'm actually working harder uh, at DoorDash than I, than I ever was in consulting. So, um, so, so it preps you for that. Um, uh, the second thing I think is just like really the, the analytical problem solving stuff. Um, we definitely need to do that there. It, it doesn't go five or 10 minutes uh, in a day at, at my job where I'm not in a spreadsheet doing something. Um, so, so being really sharp with your numbers is important. But what I, I don't think, so, so where the discrepancy is, um, is sacrificing your quality of work for the velocity of work. Uh, and this is something that I think I struggled with a lot when I first joined. Um, and and I, I should have known better, um, you know, going into a you know, company that was running a country with, I think, less than 30 people when I joined. Um, so, you know, we need to not spend time making things look pretty and we need to not have an, a, you know, analysis paralysis. We need to make decisions quickly. We need to test, we need to, you know, iterate and go and just ship. And, and I think what comes at the expense of that is, is often the quality of work that I'm used to or the bar that you're held to in consulting where you're spending hours on like, you know, a couple slides and trying to get formatting, right. And trying to get like, you know, the right, 
you know, you're getting your thesaurus out and you're like, does this word make sense? Or does this, it doesn't matter. Right. So uh, I think that took me a while to, to get used to that kind of 80, 20 principle of just like, just go. And how do you think you're doing with that now? Uh, it's a work in progress. Um, I think I'm, uh, I've always been a self-proclaimed perfectionist and it's sometimes it's tough to ship things that I know I could do, could do better. But the problem with that is that your uh, workload then just backs up. Um, and so learning to just let it go um, is, yeah, getting there. So I would say I'm, I'm about 50% of where I want to be. What have you done to move the needle to get to 50%? Um, what have I done to move the needle? I think, I think one of the things that's important is looking at the plate of problems and, and really honing in on which ones are, are going to drive the most business value, which ones are going to be the most visible and ignoring those like, you know, 50 other Slack messages from people asking for like random things. Um, and, and it sounds harsh, but like, that's what we need to do. And I've learned to be okay with that. So I, I kind of pick two or three strategic things that I want to focus on for the quarter uh, and, and really make those where I double down and, um, and, you know, granted, we, we need to do everything where, you know, you'll, you'll see that DoorDash is a, an and company, not an or company is one of the, the things that we say. So we definitely want to be able to do those two or three projects and all the little things. <laughs> but um, <laughs> when push comes to shove, you, you have to, you have to trim the fat somewhere. I've, I've felt the same way where as you add more and more that your bandwidth to kind of take on those small things just decreases and really narrowing your focus is very important. So I'd like to ask you, you mentioned that you focus on two or three things a quarter. Can you speak about how you set those things and then how do you actually make those actionable? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so some of the things that DoorDash does really well um, is we employ the OKR technique. Um, not sure if you've heard of um, if you've heard of that, but there's a book by John Doerr, which is called Measure What Matters. Uh, the OKR principle basically says you've got an objective and a, and a key result, uh, or a series of key results that tie, can tie into that objective. Key result is the measurable thing. Um, and as a company, and Google follows this, um, a lot of tech companies follow this. Uh, IBM started it, I think, or Intel, I can't remember which one, but Basically, you've Intel. got it like over Intel. Yeah. So you've got overall objectives and everything, even from your low, like your line level employees down on the bottom, everybody's got OKRs that kind of ladder up into, into a broader, uh, into a broader company objective. And they're, they're measure, measurable, right? So, so we do what's called like a walk to plan where we actually, you know, we have our KR, let's say it's, increase data quality by 15% at the end of this quarter. And then we think through like, what is it going to take to get us there on a week by week basis? And we, and we, every, every week we meet to say, here's the highs, here's the lows, here's the action plan. If we're in the red and a lot of visibility, a lot of transparency. And I think this, it's something that like when you, when you give to any employee, they're motivated, right? They're motivated to get into the green and to, and to push themselves and see, Hey, if I'm in the green, can I actually, can I beat my OKR this quarter? So um, goaling, I think, is, is, a, is a really effective technique. Um, and then, you know, some of the other things that we do really well, we're just like super scrappy. I think, you know, one of our, our, our kind of mottos is like operate at the lowest level of detail. Um, so you'll see that our founder, uh, he's like, 
you know, he's the epitome of scrappy. He still like gets out in his Honda CRV uh, and drives around and just like talks to dashers and talks to merchants and really like wants to know like what's going on. Like, and he'll sit there and explore our product and just like email the whole company. Um, like what's going on with this or like what's happening here. Um, so, so yeah, those are, those are some of the things that I think, you know, that we do that, that really helps us uh, be successful. It's funny that you mentioned the OKR system. I almost screamed, yes, uh, when you <laughs> mentioned it, because at Strive, that's exactly what we do as well as uh, we just do the, we use the OKR system, but on an individual level. So we set one yearly objective, the key results for that. And then we go quarterly and we also go weekly. Um, and yeah, we've, we've found that originally when we did like this six week trial with Strive and we, I think we all had maybe between 12 and 15 goals that we wanted to achieve in a week. Uh, it could have been fitness. It could have been health. It, uh, totally. it could have been business or relationships, whatever it was. And then what we found is that none of them got done because we were too scattered trying to do all these kind of disparate things. And then really narrowing our focus and using that objective and key results system was a great way for us to actually massively improve our productivity. Yeah. And, and I love, I love the, the call out on fitness, right? You can even do this with like, you know, let's say my, my goal for the end of this year is 10% body fat. And I'm going to like, I'm going to, every week I'm going to measure it. And I'm going to be like, what's my plan to, to get me down to this. And it's not something like, you know, I think the little wins is important. Right. Um, so if there's, if there's one, like a piece of advice that I would say is, you know, as you go through this weekly process of sometimes being in the red and being in the green, celebrate those, those little wins, right? I think, you know, at DoorDash, we, we say we want to be 1% better every day. And um, it's so, so easy to like fall into that pessimism trap. So if you're, you know, you're projected to be at 12.5% body fat this week, but you're at like 13.1, it's like, okay, well, um, you know, what am I going to do to get out of that? And, and so often we fall into this trap, like I said, where we think, the bad is greater than the good. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's like walking into walking into a store and, you know, you look on the ground and you're never going to notice like a clean floor. You're not going to walk into a store and be like, hey, this floor is clean. I, I love that about yeah. the store. But you're going to walk into a store and you're going to see like <laughs> these little dirty spots everywhere and you're going to be like, oh, gross, right? So it's so easy to focus on the negative. But I think if we focus on the positive, those little wins, they actually have a really big compounding effect, which, which over time, if you stick through it, uh, it you know, it, it helps. And so the, having that OKR really helps you kind of visualize that throughout the whole life cycle. And to highlight your point about the rewards and, and reflecting on the successes as well, that's something that we've incorporated. Is, and so with every goal, we also set uh, a really clear guideline on what is success and what is failure. And we also set um, a reward. So if we achieve this goal during the week, it can be a small reward. Like I'm going to do a meditation or I'm going to um, go out for my favorite dinner or whatever that is. Um, but mm. we really found that that helps incentivize achieving the goals and then really sticking to, to not getting the reward if you don't achieve the goal. Uh, we also, obviously we, every week we reflect on successes and challenges and, and kind of having a group to share successes with is, is really important. I think. Totally. Totally agree. Is there any kind of tactics or routines or strategies that DoorDash uses that you think might transfer over to the entrepreneurial space? Obviously, you're entrepreneurial, but um, for kind of the newer entrepreneurs, is there anything that we can steal from you guys? Um, well, obviously, first, I would say employ the OKR 
principle. It's, it's, it's hard to get right, but when you do, it's like clockwork. So, so I think that's, um, that's kind of the first thing here. Um, other routines or, or strategies? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I kind of touched on a lot of it. it it's, it's really just that bias for action um, and, and just like getting ready to ship stuff. And I know that that's like, that's not just a DoorDash thing, right? Like, I, I, you know, you really need to do that in this day and age in order to be, to be successful. I would like to, before we turn to you as a person, I'd like to finish off with your work in sales. And I'm wondering, can you tell us kind of what have you learned in that sales world? Is there, is there anything that we can steal from a sales perspective that we can implement in our own businesses? Huh, yeah. Um, working in sales ops has, has been great. I, I think I've kind of found a, a, a sweet spot for me um, <laughs> because salespeople are a different breed. <laughs> They, um, you know, I, I always, I sometimes thought that I would be a salesperson um, when I was younger, but because you're so I, nice. I do like building, oh yeah, right. Thank you, but <laughs> you're so kind. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's maybe more because I like building relationships and like authentic, genuine relationships. Um, but the, you know, the part that I, I think would wear me down in sales is that, you know, that grind, that like constant grind to hit a number and um, like. I mean, I'm always driven to like hit a hit a number and hit a target, but I I don't know I, I I don't like the schmoozing element, which I often see is like just to get the number. Like I'll you know I'll say one thing or I'll promise one thing, and I don't love that element um, of sales. So you know, sales is is cash is king for sales, right? And so I think it's important to get your sales team right. Um, it's important to train them a lot. Um, look, like for any company you've got to have you, you, you in order to grow you've got to start with the top line and and that means just having a really robust sales org that um is has strong leadership at the top that motivates them that is you know someone who can um kind of coach them to to, to be better every day um and i think they also need to be really well trained they have to know your product inside and out they have to be able to handle any sort of objection in the field. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to think like, I try to bridge like the sales org and the strategy org uh, by being empathetic to like, look, this is their, this is their livelihood. Like this is, you know, how they, how they put food on the table and, and all that kind of stuff. And then I know that that's what they're driven by, but I think there's more to that. And I think people inherently, you know, want to be challenged and they want to, you know, develop new skills. And, and so I try to push them to be more data driven. I try to push them to be more action oriented as, and, and, uh, and do the, do the right things um, that are, that are, you know, good for not just them, but for all constituents at DoorDash. Right. So, you know, when we're, when we're making a sale, for example, just getting that quick win, um, you know, might have that short term gain, but if you think about, you know, the promises that you're making to this merchant that maybe you can't uphold down the line, they're going to have a really bad experience with their activation um, and their onboarding. And if you're, you know, if you're lying and saying that, yeah, I'll just, you, know, you can get support from me at any time, but you're just on to the next sale. I think really thinking through that whole life cycle and getting the salespeople bought into to the broader organization is really important. What kind of material did you consume books or podcasts or lectures of some kind did you consume about sales in order to kind of prepare for this role or what have you done in this role to be better prepared for the sales side of things 
Yeah. So, I mean, there's like, um, there's like a little bit of a literature component to it, but I think really like looking through what are, and understanding like what are key successful sales metrics that, you know, we should, we should be measuring. I think thinking about, um, there wasn't, there's, there's definitely some books that you can, you can read. I think if you go to a website, uh, it's called copper.com. Um, they do a really good job at breaking down like the whole end to end sales cycle. So everything from like, you know, what, how do you determine a lead? How do you determine an opportunity? How do you qualify a lead? Um, all the different, you know, customer experience and, and marketing, um, you know, metrics that you should be using. What's the optimal time for, um, you know, a close ratio um, and all that kind of stuff. So, so there was definitely an element of that because let's be honest, I wasn't an expert at it. I, I just had to come in and, and own the job. Um, and uh, yeah. And then I think the other part was just like getting, really getting to know the salespeople and like getting to know them and, and what motivates them. Um, and not all salespeople are made equal. Right. So, so you have to, there is definitely, it's, it's a, it's a data driven job, but you're dealing with, you know, human beings, which are by and large, like not, not the most rational. Um, and, and there's like a, there's, you have to be able to be empathetic. I'm actually the least rational human being on the planet. I think I'm just full of emotion. It's the only way I make decisions. You know um, what? Sometimes, sometimes that's, that's okay. Right. Sometimes that works out. And as long as you're, as long as you're making a decision, I think that's what's important. Yes, you're right. I think that that's been a, a huge fault of my own is that I've allowed kind of not making a decision is still making a decision. And I didn't realize that. And so I would live my life not making a decision. Um, and recently I've really been trying to, just like you've said, is to try to be actionable. And even if it's not in the right direction, at least an action is a positive. And you, if you learn from your failures, you can kind of correct that for the future. Yeah. My partner always says, you know, everything is either a lesson or a blessing, right? So if you make the right decision, it's a blessing. If you made the wrong one, well, there's your lesson. That is so nice. She needs to be on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. She, her, she comes from a very different world than I do. <laughs> Uh, Lewis, I want to finish off with the DoorDash stuff, and I want to turn to you as a person. And and knowing you for a number of years uh -oh. here, I, I I know you as somebody that is really so driven to succeed, to learn, to grow, and to, most importantly, I think, to make a positive difference in the world. Um, so I want to get a sense of uh, where your drive come from comes from. Oh, wow. Um, kind words, Jared. I, I appreciate that. I think uh, um, I don't really consider myself any of those things, but I, I appreciate that. And I, and I hope uh, that I'm able to answer this question that may impart some wisdom on, on your listeners, because I don't know if I'll be able to, but I will try. And so the question is, where do I get it? Where do I get it from? Where does that come from? Oh, yeah. man. Um, you know, I, I guess the, sh the, okay, so do you know, Angela, you know, Angela Duckworth? Of course. Uh, yes. Obviously. Not personally, I so, wish. No, I know. I wish. Yeah, that'd be great. So, um, you know, author of Grit, you know, big uh, professor at, at UPenn X, I think she's an ex consultant too. I, you know, I, I just love her and, and her whole philosophy really, really is what resonates with me. And I think if I were to summarize that, um, that it would be grit. Right. And, and I think that resonates with me so much because I have never, nor will I ever consider myself to be, um, you know, intelligent or, or sharp. I'm, I'm always going to be, I've, I'll, I'll always have that, um, kind of dead, that, you know, devil on my shoulder telling me, you know, you can be better, you know, you're not doing well. But I think what I do have is, is that, that grit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Uh, but that's what my okay devil says I, too. 
yeah, you're a dummy, right? And and I think yeah, um, the the but it's okay with me because I know that I when push comes to shove, I, I have that kind of grit, which I think she she kind of defines as like right, um, passion and and perseverance, right? And so um, the the perseverance is, is something that I've been able to. Uh, to really be like, okay, this is my thing. Like, this is what I can do um, because it's within my control. And, um, and I can, I can, when the going gets tough, when, you know, you fail, can you get back up? Can you keep going? Um, and I think that's really where, 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 if I were to summarize it, um, I think, you know, it comes from, grit has to come from somewhere, right? And I think, I think it kind of comes from like two things, like one, being, being challenged. So you need to learn, and I am still doing this, um, but uh, you know better every day that to be un- or, sorry comfortable with the uncomfortable. Um, and every time something happens, you need to feel like that that you're like that you don't like or that you're you know it's it's hard. You have to like think, hey, this is going to be good for me. Um, and I'll like I'll be completely honest with you. Even at, at my current job, sometimes I'm like what am I do? Like, I can't do this. Like, this is overwhelming. Um, but I'm able to like have that out of body experience where I like look down and say, this is going to be good. Hang in there. And then look the next day it is. Um, so, so being challenged is important. And the other thing I think is just having a really strong support network. Um, because you are like, you are not just yourself, like all of your successes and your wins are, are the summation of, you know, everybody that's helped build you up to that. And so I think um, being able to have have people to rely on to when the going gets tough to to look for external validation and, and support is, is really important. And I you know obviously there's tons of people in my life who who've, who've contributed to that. Um, again, like I don't really consider myself to be like that successful. Like let's be honest here. I, you know, I'm just a consultant who's gone into tech that that's don't really have a lot to offer. But I, I know that um, you know, I've, I've gone through challenges and I've had great people in my, in my corner that, that have enabled me to, to kind of push through. And, and uh, so that's kind of where it all comes from, I guess. Well, I guess I've been looking at things wrong because I've been giving other people credit for all of my failures and taking full credit uh, for <laughs> all of my successes. Yeah. Well, I mean, <sighs> so, 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 look, look, sometimes people F up pretty bad. So you, know, you got <laughs> to call, call them out on that. No, that was a joke. Uh, yes, uh, I, I think community is so important as well, obviously. Uh, I want to get a sense, Lewis, of what do you do differently than other people that allows you to ch- achieve so much? Mm, like tactically? Yeah, what kind of routines or habits do you have? Well, <clears throat> what kind of routines? Uh, I'm a big efficiency guy. So, um, you know, uh, little things like um, you know, brushing your teeth in the shower, for example. Like that's killing two birds, right? Every, anytime you can kill two birds, I think <laughs> it's a big win. Um, I, I love exercising. Um, and in that same vein of efficiency, uh, I love like hit workouts because it's like 50 minutes, super intense, get your heart rate like way up there. Um, and then that's your workout for the day and you don't have to spend two hours at the gym. Um, and like, I think exercise in general is just like a, something that has really helped my, uh, my mental well-being more than more than more than my physical well-being um and um yeah just kind of staying uh up to date with uh you know all the things like you know i listen to a podcast every day on my way to work um 
I tend to just gravitate to kind of the, the standard, you know, Freakonomics and, and that fun stuff. But those are, um, yeah, any anytime you can gain efficiency, I think that's uh, that's something you should be doing. What, do you have any quotes right now that resonate with you? Uh, quotes right now. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I... <laughs> So I'm, I'm following the, the presidential election uh, pretty pretty closely right now. Um, R.I.P. My girl Lizzie just dropped out. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I really I, I really did. Uh, I was vying for her, and I and I, I, I yeah. held out hope until the last minute there. And and I think if you think about that, like she's got a bunch of kind of slogans or mottos. Not really a quote, I guess per se, but you know hers is um, like I think it's dream big, fight hard. Um, and I think that that's that's really important. I think. Um, the, especially the, the fighting, right? Um, and, and that just kind of goes back to everything I've been talking about around around grit and, and perseverance. Um, she's looking to make big, like systematic changes um, and you have to start somewhere. So so I think her, along with all of her other kind of values really resonates with me. Um, I guess like if, if I were to think about something else, I'm a, I'm a sucker. I'm a sucker for, for good marketing. I, um, I like scrolling through Instagram and... Uh, I, like an Under Armour ad came up on my on my Instagram, and they've got this like new slogan, which is like the only way is through, and I love that one because it's it's true, right? Like there are there are no shortcuts. Um, yeah, like you may think it's a shortcut, but it's not a shortcut. Like I I, I fun like and it's like in um uh, Lord of the Rings, you know when they talk about um can't go around it or like can't go yes. over it you have to go through it yeah or the mount the mines of moria or whatever it is so i i just i loved that one because it's true and like if you think about you know whether you're trying to learn a new coding language whether or not you're trying to you know get down to 10 percent body fat the only way is to put in the work um and, and that's something that i i i hold on to like really near and dear to my heart that's actually it's really important and i think it's really kind of underrepresented out there in the literature in some ways is just how hard building something from scratch or, or pushing through those barriers is. And I, for one, with Strive, really didn't know how hard it was going to be. And and I definitely, looking back, if I'd known how hard it was at the beginning, I don't know if I would have started, uh, but mm-hmm. now I'm kind of committed. Yeah. And, and man, keep going because like, look, you just got to push that flywheel every day, little bit, push it and then sooner or later you know it's gonna it's gonna pick up and and you'll look back and be like hey my ninth podcast like and i'll be able to say hey like i was there on the on the ninth podcast that was me (laughs) or whatever i am i recently had a a guest on conor melander and and he's uh from the band half moon run one of the the founders and their guitarist and in that discussion we talked about how the the joys in life come from actually overcoming challenges it's not actually from the the success itself. It's really about pushing through and and pushing harder than you thought you could, and through that process, achieving something. And then I think that a lot of that, the value in one's life comes from just like you said, pushing through. Yeah, totally. And then like that sometimes is more. Oh my god, it reminds me of like the this like really cheesy quote that I think a lot of people get tattooed on themselves when they're like drunk in Mexico or something, but it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the death, it's the journey, not the destination or whatever. Right. So, um, which I, I, I would, I would not advocate for getting tattooed on yourself, but I think it, the essence is there of what we're talking about. How did you know that I had that tattooed? 
I mean, is it on your lower back, Jared? Because I wouldn't oh, go that. And my calf. I've got it doubled. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> calf sleeve. Turning back to real life here, what is the best yeah. book that you've read recently and why? Best book? Um, well, uh, admittedly, I, I'm, I, I'm not... Uh, I don't read as much as I want to. I probably only get to like, you know, six a year maybe, um, which is not great. But I did just come back from a very relaxing five-day uh, vacation in, in Mexico, well needed, laid on the beach for eight hours a day and was able to, to crank through a few. And um, I think one of the ones that I would really recommend is is actually, so there's one book in, in, in particular, but it's actually a company called The School of Life. Um, so the book is, is called A Job to Love. Uh, but the School of Life is kind of, it's a, it's an organization. I think they're probably a nonprofit. Um, and I think they're just like devoted to helping people lead more uh, fulfilling lives. I actually found out about them, uh, this cool little like hipster shop in, in Yaletown in, in Vancouver. They were selling the books. Um, one of them was on relationships and then this one was on uh, a career. And they do all sorts of like self-knowledge and like, you know, meditating and just really like how do we, how to become better versions of ourselves. Uh, I think they do like seminars, but the books are, are great. And I read um, Job to Love. And I think that, you know, I, I picked this one up because, you know, I a lot of a lot of people are trying to figure out like, what, how do I find that job that I love? And it does a really good job at breaking everything down. Um, and, and in terms of like, how do we find that job? Um, and I'll be honest, like I'm still searching. Um, I think it is, I think that perfect job, the, the the takeaways from the books are like one, that perfect job may be like an asymptote, right? Like I, I don't think it exists or or you're gonna kill yourself trying to find it. Um, so you have to you have to learn when to just kind of accept when you're happy. Um, I think the the second takeaway for me from that book was like really taking time to get introspective and and think through like what makes you fundamentally happy at that like visceral level of joy and bliss and and how can you like and you have to and like the book encourages you to like think back to being a child and like actually what were the things when you were organizing your dolls um did that make you happy or did you you know did you want to just like put makeup all over them and throw them all over the room or, or whatever right so like there are, there are things that you should be doing to think through like what it is that really makes you happy. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, and then the last part is it's okay if you haven't figured it out. So it was a great book for me. Um, and they did a lot of great thought experiments. They like tied everything back to, uh, like kind of history. When you think about, you know, nowadays, everybody's like, I want my job to be um, high paying, uh, easy and fulfilling. And, you know, <laughs> like around the, the passion that I have, but then you think back to like, like 17th century England, where it's like, you know, I'm shoveling shit or whatever, like that's my job yeah. and I do it to like, so we've come a long way and we're, it's, it's, we're trying to find that dichotomy between like passion and, um, like just putting food on the table kind of thing. So, um, it's a great book, and I and I and I recommend the School of Life uh, to anyone. I see a parallel to relationships as well, where uh, if we think back to our grandparents, and let's go back to the 1930s, for example, and if you were a man, you were 18 years old, and you were looking for a partner, what happened? Well, you, you probably married 
the girl next door, literally in the next apartment yep. block or next house or three doors down, uh, because that was, there was no other choice. And, and that was who you were familiar with and, and it just worked out. And then you figured a way to, to make it work. And now it's kind of the paradox of choice where we have almost unlimited options for relationships. We're, and we're also, now that we have that choice, we're looking for more, for more. We're looking not just for somebody that lived next door. We're looking for somebody that can grow with us spiritually, physically, um, mm-hmm. emotionally, somebody that's going to keep up with our interests and somebody that's going to challenge us, but also support us. It's like a very complex dynamic that didn't exist 70 years ago, 50 years ago, 40 yeah, years man. ago. We're, we're a generation that wants it all. We want, we want everything under the sun. We want everything to be uh, in equal proportion and we want everything to be perfect. And, and, and it's tough, right? Like with, with the, the proliferation of just all the options that we have, uh, you know, the book called out like back in the, in the whatever, 1800s, you know, women used to not know like what the high fashion stuff was before newsprint or before, you know, like before newspapers. And then when France, and high society started like printing them out and, and spreading these papers throughout the country. Women were like, Oh damn, like this is how I'm stacking <laughs> up. Like I want like, so, uh, so it's the same thing. It's like, you know, when we see these people with these you know, big fancy jobs and these big fancy you know careers and, and stuff like that, we, we strive for more. It's almost like you're on the strive for more podcast. What? Oh, boom. <laughs> what is the most important thing that you've learned in the last year that you think can massively impact our listeners to totally turn away from uh, boom? Got it. Mm. Um, so again, um, fully understanding that like I'm I'm not an, an entrepreneur, but I think some of the things that you know I've been able to experience this last year may be applicable. Um, recently, I think one of the things, maybe more tactically, is is just getting in the habit of like testing everything. Um, just like if you've got an idea, test it. Um, and you need the data to support it. Right. So, um, if like, I know you said you like largely make decisions on on your emotions. I think I would just push back a little bit there and be like, you have to have some sort of factual uh, base to have that and, and, and make sure that you're running these tests. So, so we do that constantly in, in my job. Um, and maybe in like an almost opposing vein, which is kind of something we've, we've talked about is like, don't kill yourself with the analysis. Right. So um, act fast, take the risks uh, and, and learn from it and move on. So I think, I think that's one. Um, the, the second, the second thing I think, which is actually related to kind of what we we're just talking around about, you know, wanting to be better and, and, and strive for more. And um, especially maybe around, you know, having a career and whether it is starting your own business or whether it is consulting or whatever. Um, I think it's it's important to always remember that yes, there's going to be someone better than you, smarter than you, um, you know, more skilled than you. Um, but but it's it's also important to you know look down the ladder and realize like you have it better off than a lot of other people, um, and, and and there are people who will always strive to to be someone like in your shoes, um, and you know you see these great entrepreneurs who have started something and um you know they've they've made the unicorn so tony shu is the the ceo of ours but what we actually don't see is like all the failures that it took to get them there um we think they're the best or they you know they're so skilled or they have the the best idea but but in reality i think it kind of you know coming full circle here on everything that we've we've talked about 
I don't think having the best idea is what, what wins. I don't think having, you know, the, the, like the quote unquote skills is, is what makes you win. I think having that tenacity, um, and, and then secondly, that the people, um, is, is really what is going to make or break uh, an entrepreneur's success. And, and I think that, you know, the successful people are, are, they're made right. And they're not, they're not born. So I think, um, Sorry, I, I'm just I'm realizing I'm remembering all these things that I I'm really passionate about. Um, there's this notion of I think it's uh, it's called plur- pluralistic ignorance, um, and it's like this notion in psychology where we all think that like everybody else has got it made, right? Everybody's got it figured out, but we're all thinking that, <laughs> and so it's kind of like the blind leading the <laughs> blind, and to just be able to like sit back and be like I'm just gonna like focus on my own thing i'm gonna be humble and i'm gonna put my head down do the work well, very important do the work um be grateful and and like the success will follow so i guess um yeah i would just i would say that that's what's allowed me to kind of get where i am that's beautifully put uh and i want to finish off lewis with one last question here and in our weekly stride meetings what we do is that uh, one person has the opportunity to say this is my blind spot. So this is what I think is holding me back from higher levels of success. We then go around the table and everybody at the group says they kind of contribute to that discussion. And and we really drill down to what is that one thing or those couple of things that are holding back that person from success. Mm -hmm. And then we hold that person accountable to actually improving that at, at, um, at a later date. And so the question that I have for you requires a little bit of vulnerability from your end. And so my question is, what do you think is holding you back from even higher levels of success right now? Oh man, so many things. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess like I would start by saying like what defines success and you don't have to have the answer to that, but that is like the, the underlying question here is like, how do you define success? Um, and, and I mean, okay, I guess like, well, like one thing, I think we're both trying to work on this is, is being more decisive. And I've, I've already kind of preached this a little bit, like just taking a decision and go sometimes I find myself even in the supermarket just being like do I want these crackers or do I want these chips and I'm just like oh and then I'm like holy shit I've been here for 10 minutes trying to think what chips I want (laughs) something and go so um so I think that's kind of like the one thing that I I can work on like easily um I think uh another thing and and to your point about you know being a little bit more vulnerable um is is really trying to figure out like what my actual passion is um, from like a tangible perspective. And, and that's a little like, um, that's a little embarrassing to admit that like, you know, I, I don't necessarily have that passion uh, for, for anything, any one thing in particular, but I also think that's okay. And, and uh, you know, coming to terms with like, I will find what that is. And I just need to keep opening myself up to new experiences in order to discover that. Um, and then I guess, um, I guess maybe the third thing is, uh, learning to really crack the mental game. Uh, I never really realized until recently how important mental health is. Um, mm. And and mental health may, may be like too broad. I, I'm thinking more um, just like, how do we, how do we just remain positive in our lives? Um, and I think, you know, I've been talking to my dad a lot about this. He's a big, he was a big golfer, big, big golfer. Um, you know, he was shooting 67 when he was like 16 years old. Wow. And the one thing he always says is, you know, golf is such a mental game, right? And yes. how do you, when you're playing 18 holes and on the second hole, 
your triple bogey, how do you not let that destroy the rest of your game? How do you how do you push on um, and and have the mind over matter? So that's like one of the things that I'm trying to work on. Like life can suck <laughs> sometimes, and it's so easy to get bogged down. And I think unlocking, like learning to unlock that key to like positivity, uh, awareness, and and just like a sometimes just like a sense of calm is is for me what I need to to get better at. I think you know they say like worrying about something it means you you you're running the risk of suffering twice right so so why even worry like let's just take a deep breath um my new apple watch reminds me to do that which is great um and you know <laughs> if, if it's something like meditation which i'm like i've never really done those are the kind of things that i think i want to get better at because i know that having that mental game is, is going to be so important for, for the next things i want to accomplish well a lot of what you said has resonated with me and and i know that a lot of my challenges are around that mental aspect or around staying positive of pushing through challenges on the meditation front. I've, I've had a meditation practice for many years that, that has kind of waned and come and, and, and gone. Uh, one thing that I've discovered recently is that finding the time to sit down for 30 minutes can be difficult. And sometimes that meditation process can allow your mind to wander and, and actually exacerbate that issue sometimes. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I found just really within the last couple of weeks is something called Wim Hof breathing, which I, Wim Hof is that guy that does the cold water sub submersion. Like he's hiked, he climbed Everest right. without a shirt on uh, and without oxygen. And, and what, a tactic that he uses is some really intense breathing exercises. And so I've been starting my morning off with a couple of things. Number one is uh, water with some salt in it and, le and lemon squeezed, uh, yep. some blue light, five minutes of blue light exposure, and then this Wim Hof breathing, which is about 10 minutes. And it's really intense. You breathe in and out and in and out and in and out, and then hold your breath for a minute to a minute and a half at a time. Um, yeah. And it's only 10 minutes, but it's it's uh, it's been a only great 10 way minutes. To start. That sounds like a, that sounds like a, a lot of time spent huffing and huffing and huffing. <laughs> I'm like, my Apple Watch tells me to do it for a minute, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, is it over yet? <laughs> it's like 40 seconds. Light and you're like headed. I know. Um, well, that's that's great, and like you know, I, I know the literature and the science is there around around the, the benefits, and so um, kudos to you for 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 nailing that, and something I definitely want to explore a little bit more. Well, Lewis, with that, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I have really enjoyed reconnecting with you. And, and I know that you've offered really just a ton of value to the listeners out there. Um, so I want to take, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us. And, and I know that you're somebody that's achieving some really significant things in this world. So I'm really just grateful that you sat down with us today. And for the listeners out there, if you want to learn more about Lewis, you can find him personally on LinkedIn at Lewis Matthews. That's two T's. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jared. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode and hopefully you got some lessons from this that you can apply to your own health, wealth, or relationships. I created this podcast to help myself learn from those that came before me. And now I want to pass these lessons on to you to hopefully help you on your journey. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this content, then please subscribe and continue listening for our weekly episodes.